From S and FM New York, you're listening to. I've spent my entire adult life, with the exception of a few brief months here and there, working through my emotional life with the help of psychologists. It's more or less the culture I was raised in, and I reluctantly share with you a portrait of my first therapist, Dr. Solwyn Brody. As a boy of five or six, I remember being stationed on a phone in the living room, with my mom in the kitchen, my dad in the upstairs bedroom, and my two sisters in their respective bedrooms all of us with phones in our hands, talking to Dr. Brody about what ailed us. My little sister couldn't have been older than three at this stage, and I'm not sure she even knew how to speak. All the more time and energy to focus on me. Hard to describe Brody. My uncle once ran into Brody while walking with a work friend in Central Park and tried desperately and unsuccessfully to avoid Brody who resembled more a homeless visionary than a mental health worker. With a few days of stubble on his face, disheveled clothes, and wild blue eyes, I'm often surprised the man was issued a license of any kind, let alone one to practice psychotherapy. All his theories seemed to illustrate his basic enthusiasm for not suppressing feelings or impulses of any kind. Anger should not be allowed to become unconscious, and in general, nothing should be suppressed. That was his entire theoretical foundation. As a six-year-old without a conscience, his theories appealed to me greatly. Finally, I felt free to say what I thought, that I would like candy, and I'd like not to be punished for hitting my sisters or urinating on my mom's china, again, or defecating on my father's maps. Despite or maybe because of his eccentricity, Brody was a bit of a celebrity in New York analytic circles. Everyone on my dad's side of the family spoke to him. My uncle, my aunt, my cousins, my grandparents, and several relatives on my mom's side of the family as well. Brody would often share with one person what other family members had said about him or her, laying out for the ambushed patient the ugly specifics, naked revelations of jealousy, resentments, petty and otherwise directed right at the patient. Maybe because I was the family member least encumbered by a sense of restraint or decency and most receptive to his ideas, I always felt Brody had my back. Years later he would say to my folks when the three of us were having a phone session and I was whining about needing a $2,000 Honda ATV, why don't you let the boy have one? It was more or less the same when I said I needed a howler monkey that I had located at an Atlanta pet shop. Why don't you let the boy have a monkey? Then I would listen intently, full of hope, as my parents suppressed their anger towards Dr. Brody and tried to explain why they didn't want their 13-year-old son, the same son who had just stole $40 from the Sadaka box at synagogue on Yom Kippur in order to buy cigarettes and a lighter, the same 13-year-old son who had then purchased maxi pads from the woman's bathroom and while smoking the cigarettes on the most hallowed day of the Jewish people, proceeded to stick onto the bathroom wall those same maxi pads. 
and light them on fire. This same 13-year-old boy, my parents struggled uncomfortably and without complete confidence to say, seemed a boy ill-fit to care for either an all-terrain vehicle or an expensive, exotic animal. But when my parents weren't on the line, it could be slightly less fun to speak to Brody, who once interrupted a tirade of mine about schoolwork to ask if and how often I sexually fantasized about my mother. Quite often, Dr. Brody, quite. He was angry that I had neglected a session, and I took his anger as an invitation to stop speaking to him. I had also come into information the week before, information about Brody that in retrospect makes perfect sense, but at the time seemed disquieting. On a dad-son road trip to do some fishing in St. Simons, Georgia, my dad mentioned to me that Brody had had an affair in World War II with the married wife of a GI off fighting in the Pacific. I asked my dad if he approved of Brody's infidelity, and my dad explained that it was somewhat complicated. You see, Brody had never actually had sex with the woman. At this point, my father explained that my therapist, as a younger man, albeit, had helped the married woman over her anxieties and guilt by working out an arrangement whereby he would spank her ass very hard and for a sustained period of time until both she and Brody came to orgasm. In a sense, Brody had truly liberated the scared bourgeois woman. He was a real healer. Brody had apparently told my father this during a session, and for whatever reason, the story was passed on to me during this fishing trip. That's about the whole story, and as I said before, I more or less weaned myself off Brody and went through my teens and twenties seeking the insight of of other less idiosyncratic or downright crazy therapists. But it occurs to me every so often that a bit of Brody has stuck with me and become part of the core of who I am. Whether I'm being myself in a job interview or masturbating furiously on the subway in front of a horrified family from Kansas. This is who I am and fuck you if you don't like it. Thanks Brody. Brody was written and performed by Jacob Weber, recorded and edited by Mike Solomon, and produced by Iris Smiles. For art, writing, and short films, visit us 24 hours a day at smilesandfish.com. That's S-M-Y-L-E-S-A-N-D-F-I-S-H.com. The Smiles and Fish podcast is made possible by a generous donation from the McPiggles Foundation. And now, current events. Join us Monday, November 13th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at The Strand, New York City, for the launch of the Smiles and Fish Pocket Edition. With special performances by Jonathan Ames, Arthur Nassessian, Neil Swab, and Mike Top. For information, visit smilesandfish.com.